can you introduce yourself? My name is Matt Sperling, writer for Channel Fireball and former pro player. So, Matt, can you tell us why are you sick of it? <laughs> well, it's, a, it's an ever-changing and growing list of reasons why. You'll have to read the column to find out why in this moment or that moment. I, you know, there's always, it's always something. Kitchen Table Magic is sponsored by Paragon City Games. They're a community-focused game store in Draper, Utah that cares deeply about their player base. Tune into their stream at twitch.tv slash paragoncitygames for daily legacy action. I had the honor of being invited to Paragon City Games to film a vlog about their Heroes League Invitational Qualifier series. The players there love competitive magic. The store is super clean, open, friendly, and a great place to play magic. Their staff is super friendly and they have an amazing streaming setup to broadcast live feature matches. Talking about it doesn't do it justice, you'll have to go see the vlogs I made to know what I'm talking about. Just go to facebook.com slash paragoncitygames and click on videos. I made one each on standard, modern, and legacy. Kitchen Table Magic is sponsored by Card Kingdom. With fast shipping, the best card sleeves, deck boxes, binders, and all the modern, legacy, and commander staples you could ever want, Card Kingdom is there with the hookup. If you'd like to support the show, just use our affiliate link, cardkingdom.com slash ktm. Order your Guilds of Ravnica singles and sealed product now. You know you want that sweet Assassin's Trophy action. Great removal is, well, great! Thank you for supporting the show when you shop at cardkingdom.com slash ktm. Welcome to Kitchen Table Magic, a storytelling podcast featuring the amazing people of the Magic the Gathering community. I'm your host, Sam Tang. Join me and my guests as we share stories about what MTG means to us, how we got started playing Magic, the ups, the downs, the hilarious stories, and everything in between. I'm excited to have on the show longtime pro player, thoughtful critic, and commentator of happenings in the MTG community, Matt Sperling. Matt has been around the magic scene for a long time and writes his popular column, Sick of It. He uses humor to make poignant remarks about the issues that are going on in the community. I took this opportunity to ask Matt what he thought about the future of magic, how pro players should be using their time, and what he thinks is Watsi's responsibility to govern the community we have. If there's one person in the magic community I'd like to ask these tough questions to, it's gotta be Matt Sperling. I hope you enjoy my conversation with the one and only Matt Sperling. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me on Kitchen Table Magic. I'm your host, Sam Tang, and today I'm with Matt Sperling. Matt, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you so much for hopping on a call with me today. My pleasure. Like I said in my uh, message to you, I'm a longtime listener, first-time caller. So, thanks so much for uh, accepting my interview request for the show. No, I, I appreciate it. If you're someone that likes the, likes the column or likes you know the, the tweets, uh, I always appreciate that feedback and hope people get as, as much enjoyment out of consuming that stuff as I get creating it. And listeners, if you're not familiar with Matt, Matt is a longtime pro and he has an extensive knowledge of the game, but more so than that, he has an extensive knowledge of the entire Magic the Gathering community. And he writes a very, very popular column called Matt's Burling Sick of It on ChannelFireball.com. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But just like all things, we start from the beginning. Matt, where did you grow up and how did you find magic? So I grew up in Southern California. My first job, if you can call it a job, was 
at a sports cards trading, you know, trading card store and, and comic books. And so at the time, if you can believe it, this is going to date me, but pogs were very popular. And, they, <laughs> you know, they had a full-time employee who was working the selling sports cards, packs and comics, but then they wanted to put pogs in a special area in the back. And the person, the adult, because I was 15 at the time, something like that, maybe, maybe younger, maybe 12, the person, I, I was something like that. The person couldn't really watch the whole store and like get, sell pogs. So I kind of did that and they paid me in store credit. It was probably was almost certainly wasn't a legal arrangement, but for better or worse, that was my first job, so to speak. As part of that, one day they just got, you know, a revised starter deck or two and, you know, and I think some legends had just come out. So that, that again, that, that dates it, but my first cards were revised cards and legends cards because the, that's what the store got. And I just became immediately hooked. I had a, a friend or two that, that got into it with me and we just, you know, there were, weren't enough hours in the day to play at that point. Were you drafting or building decks playing constructed? Well, back then there, it was all kind of one and the same. I mean, you could, we didn't think of it as limited, but you could now look back and, and characterize it as sealed deck because again, we had a pretty limited pool of cards, but I think maybe by a technical definition, it was constructed because we were just trying putting our best cards in a deck. It just so happened that we didn't have so many of them at that point. Do you remember some of those first cards, those old cards you had? Yeah, I remember like Fireball was a big splashy one. And we, in the first few iterations of us playing, we thought the Fireball stayed in play, right? We didn't quite get the sorceries went away after you used them. So it would take a little bit longer for us to pick that up. I remember that. I remember cards like Unholy Strength just being like, wow, how cool is this? Like, you know, I just, the whole thing was new to us. And so certain cards stick out in my memory. But yeah, there were a lot of fun cards. That's so funny that you said that uh, early on, you thought that the Fireball as a sorcery stayed in play. So what did you just, you just use it as like an X and just like tapped it and just like kept yeah. to, continuously let it deal damage? Yeah, and you can imagine it was quite a good card. <laughs> I mean, it was already it was already one of the more powerful cards we had, and when you treated it like a permanent that that could do it once a turn, it was even more powerful. So yeah, I think quickly one of us may have said this doesn't feel quite right. So eventually we got to the right answer. I remember having it in play and just looking. All right, untap. Uh, fireball again. <laughs> <laughs> That's super funny because when I was uh, starting off playing Magic, I had Dark Ritual or my friend did and he just treated it like a mana source like on the battlefield. So he played one black and every single time he would <laughs> tap it, he get three more black mana. So we were like, wow, that card is really good. Yeah, some of these cards get a lot more effective if you can use them every turn. <laughs> no <laughs> So when did you start learning how to play Magic more deeply and decided to become a pro? So my path to becoming a pro player was pretty long and winding. I initially became aware of Tournament Magic because a different local comic book store, Comic Quest, they started hosting these tournaments. I was so young, I, I really wasn't a good player in any sense of the word. I mean, I, I was, I, I barely, I kind of knew how to play, but not really. And and so it was just like showing up, I would just kind of look around and kind of marvel at the players who kind of knew what was going on. I had an older brother who was, who was much better than me at the time. And he kind of eventually pieced it together faster than I did that, you know, you there's ways to build a deck, there's ways to be competitive. And again, this is a time where there's only constructed limited isn't really on the radar at this point. So I ended up, you know, hanging around that that comic book shop, mostly watching, you know, very little participating because I don't really feel comfortable, but I want to see what other people are doing. I'm just fascinated by it all. Like I said, I mean, I would, I would go and see someone using Orcish Artillery with Circular Protection Red and that little synergy or Earthquake with Circular Protection Red. I remember these kind of synergies popping up and then my older brother had the wherewithal to copy that and build his own, you know, Earthquake and Hurricane Circular Protection deck with Mana Flare. I mean, this is like a popular deck at the time. 
he had the wherewithal to kind of build it. I was just kind of watching and, and soaking it in. And it wasn't really until years later that I would, would compete at a high level in those tournaments. And it wasn't, it was years later still until I would get onto the pro tour. I think it was 99 or 2000 when I won my first PTQ. So, you know, there's a process that took several years, but I was fascinated and enjoying myself the whole time. How did your mindset change about the game when you just like were playing as a kid, discovering the cards, just kind of enjoying this puzzle? And then now, I guess, uh, not now, but like in the future at that time, you were like, wow, I'm a pro now. <laughs> I'm on the pro tour. Yeah, there's definitely, I mean, it, it meant a lot to me. But, and it, it, it shifted, it, in my mind, it really was the realization of a dream that I had. And I mean that quite literally as like a daydream. You know, I would go on a walk when I was 16 or whatever, and I would think about, man, wouldn't it be cool, a kind of daydream, wouldn't it be cool if I was on the pro tour competing against the best players? And, you know, and people, when they opened up Sideboard Magazine, they would read about my tournament success, and they would copy the decks that I played. And, and that and, and that really came into it, it came became reality. I wasn't the best player in the world at any point, but I was good enough that I could look up on a website and see my name among the results list, or I saw people certainly copying my decks, or at least copying ideas of mine. Or hey, the, who won the, the PTQ in Southern California? Oh, Matt Berlin, he used this cool deck. You know, I remember I can talk about different experiences I've had at PTQs, like a Gifts Ungiven in the in the very first block tournament, but. That all, of course, whenever you're kind of realizing a dream, there's part of it that feels like what you thought it would be like, and there's part of it that's new that you didn't expect. And so definitely experienced both sides of that. What was the new thing that you didn't expect that you would feel? So I think in, I think in my visualization of it, it was kind of more solitary than what, you know, it was kind of me conquering these objectives that I had or these dreams that I had. And in reality, it was actually much more collaborative. And, you know, the friends that you prepared with were just as important as the work that you put in or the ideas that you came up with on your own. You had to kind of, I mean, you had to, at that time, especially you had to be, you had to have your own ideas and be able to contribute. But it was also about working together with a team and then traveling. The fun of it also was very much bound up or wound up in who you were traveling with and who you're spending time with. And, getting to know those people, just making lifelong friends along the way. I mean, it sounds cheesy, but again, that's a difference between what I experienced and what I thought about in my head, which was just like me showing up and being conquering the world because I was so good, which is just not quite <laughs> how it works. Matt, I think it's very interesting that you say that during this process, you discovered that magic was not necessarily an individual endeavor, that you really valued the thoughts and the contributions of all of your friends and playtesters. How did working with other players in a playtest environment shape your understanding of magic as a team sport? Yeah, I mean, pretty dramatically, because you it, most I mean, the, the thing that sticks out to me from like a viscerally was showing up to a tournament with the mindset of we're, we are going to dominate this tournament. You know, the, the strategy that we prepared is going to be really effective was a definitely, it was like a zero to one switch from before thinking I'm going to show up and work on this thing at the kitchen table and show up having played against my brother and my dad or whatever. Very uh, different than showing up as part of a team and preparing for a team also just, I mean, that's, the only way at that time to get that practice that you needed was to have a group that could play more. You couldn't you couldn't just play Friday or Saturday afternoon against random people at that time you could, because you, there was no magic online. There wasn't even really robust online discussion groups that I was plugged into. There were a few and there was, you know, IRC in a limited capacity. But anyways, if you wanted to really get better from this week to the next, it really helped to have people you could go show up to show up on a Tuesday night at the local bar or show up at someone's house on, on Wednesday and get those games in. So 
there was a very practical component of it, getting enough games in and enough repetitions. And then there was also the huge strategic component of, hey, we're all in this together. It's, we're going to get a lot further, the five of us trying to solve a problem than each of us trying to solve it on our own. So it was kind of a bunch of different factors that and I, once it clicked, it was like a light bulb moment. Like, like I said, zero to one, like this is the only way to really get better is to find other people who are trying to get better too and just ram into each other until you both improve and kind of refine it. The message that you're talking about is very, very collaborative, is very supportive of the community. And I think that's very indicative of the role that you play in the community because you've always been very supportive of pros. You've always been voicing your concerns about competitive play and competitive pay as well, pay the pros. And so that, that's just been very consistent. And it's interesting how you're bringing kind of your origin stories into the mix. It's just like, well, this is this is how I started. This is where I cut my teeth. And this is the kind of, um, I guess this is the kind of community that I started with. So of course, it's ingrained in you as a person as you carry that forward into the present day. Matt, I'm curious, when did you start writing your column, Sick of It? Yeah, there was... and th So there's something that a lot of people don't understand about the Sick of It column and about like my, my persona on Twitter. I mean, there is there is some caricature to it. There's some... It's not quite like Stephen Colbert would go fully into character. It's not quite that deep, right? So it's, it's something a hybrid between Jon Stewart and Stephen Colbert. Not to say that I'm in that category, obviously. I'm doing something completely different. But in terms of just how serious you take the character versus the comedy and all that stuff, when people meet me a lot, I've had this. I've had dozens of people tell me, wow, you're like really nice in real life, but you, you play this like aggravated uh, contrarian you know, online. What's up with that? Um, most recently, I had, had a conversation with a member of the coverage team that, that expressed that to me like, hey, I, you know, just kind of you know, what's your approach with that? And it, it kind of, it just kind of came to, it came to fruition through the goal of trying to make people entertained and using humor as my best tool in my toolkit to entertain people. I never found a, a magic writing that was purely descriptive to be as engaging to be, I wasn't as proud of that work. If I did, if I, you know, if I wrote, Hey, here's how to sideboard with the blue black control deck, you know, maybe I could, maybe have some insights, but that, I was never as proud of that work as, when I hear back from people, yeah, that really made me laugh. Oh, man, I love that. So over the years, I just, yeah, it, it got kind of, like I said, branded or put into the kind of more of a character with the, with the sick of it where I'm showing up with, yeah, a deliberately kind of contrarian take that maybe others, t touching a few subjects others are scared to touch because of their relationships with, let's say, Wizards of the Coast or, right? So like you mentioned earlier, I've been able to take some positions that are a little bit combative or trying to shine a light where I think a light ought to be shown, even if it, it doesn't make me the most likely player to get like a special invite or whatever. But, you know, I always said, hey, I'm, I'm going to try to bring people something that's both entertaining, but also kicks off a conversation that I think we ought to be having. So I think that's a kind of thread that you can see run through a lot of my writing. Whenever I read your column and articles, it seems to me that these are topics that are itching in the back of your head, burning in the back of your mind. You're, you, you know, things happen in the magic, I guess, things happen in like the daily magic community. And you're like, well, that's not right. Or that, that doesn't feel equitable. And so you're like, well, I have this professional background. And so you bring that forward and you discuss it. And, and yeah, granted, it is a little bit contrarian. And yeah, granted, it kind of goes against what this, I guess, magic as a game, but Wizards of the Coast also as a corporate brand always wanted to be really careful of this balance of what is family friendly, what sells the most product, but then also being very clear about, well, you know, there's a lot of people hinging on the secondary market, hinging on competitive play, hinging about their livelihoods as a pro and what all of that means in the greater meta, meta of this whole industry. 
Yeah, and and for every I mean, and for every serious issue, and there are many. I've written about the reprint policy. I've written about you know issues regarding who should be banned from tournament play, who should be allowed to play, you know, and based on the criminal background. For, I mean, I've written about these topics that people have serious, strong opinions. And when I find a lot of people with serious, strong opinions, I sometimes locate people that are taking it a little bit too seriously. That really. You know, you I try to locate both some insight into the topics that are going on the topic of the day, right? I, I try to find some insight, but also some levity to again maybe maybe take some people down a few pegs. And so there's a balance there because, as I say, I mentioned someone like Stephen Colbert, and, and I'm being generous. Someone else who doesn't perhaps like my work, they might say, "Hey, well, you're actually like." one of the sports talking heads, like a Skip Bayless, who just finds a controversial take. And I try hard not to do that, to just to try to find this a perspective that I really don't think is defensible just for the sake of, you know, clicks or, or whatever. I actually think it's easy to locate a position in most issues that I do think is is at least, you know, very defensible and worthy of discussion, but maybe isn't getting enough of the attention in, in, in the popular discussion. So just to take the example of, you know, pay the pros, I think it's easy to it's easy to ask for more prizes and it's easy to complain about existing structure and not that those complaints aren't justified, but that's kind of the low hanging fruit. That's easy. That's step one. And I've tried to come in and say, okay, how can I present to my reader maybe a more balanced look at what the different trade-offs are, but also an opinion about how those trade-offs should be made, how those should be navigated. I've tried to do that on a number of different issues. doesn't always succeed. Sometimes it does come off as just contrarian for contrarian's sake because, you know, it's, it's a hard thing to do. And I, I don't always hit the mark, but I definitely always show up with the intention of laying out a lot of the, trying to simplify a lot of the complexity on these complex issues be entertaining while providing a take. So it's a juggling act. But yeah, it's something I have a lot of practice with. Do you feel that sometimes audiences don't necessarily fully understand your background to kind of understand when it's tongue in cheek, when it's entertaining, when it's trying to be more provocative and more thought provoking? And then also other times when you have grounded, you know, experience in some of these topics you're talking about? There's a real danger in blaming readers for not spotting things that, that it was my job to make those spots. So I think, you know, I, I try not to write relying so heavily on my reputation or my background. I actually find the opposite is more common. What's more common is someone has a preconceived idea about my approach to something and they bring that in and, and kind of don't read the article in a fair way. That sometimes happens. Less frequently do I see something, see someone and say, oh man, if they just knew my background or my take, because I've very much come from a, a, a legal background and, you know, devil's advocate and, and debate where you're actually, you should make your argument, you should make your case independent of your own background, um, which is these days an, an increasingly controversial statement in and of itself. But that's certainly my approach. If I don't lay out the arguments for why Wizards should ban a certain card or why they should maybe even ban a certain player... If I don't lay out the arguments in a way that you could take the byline off and not know who wrote it, but still understand the arguments, then I've failed. So yeah, I actually, I try to take more ownership over that and not let the reader have that be a gap where I'm, I'm leaning on my reputation like, hey, look at me. I've been in the community a long time. Therefore, I, I wouldn't leave with that argument. Certainly, I, I would say actually, the, here are the trade-offs and here's the reasons why I think the community would be better served by this outcome instead of that outcome. 
What do you feel has been some of your most controversial topics? I mean, they're the usual suspects like MTG yeah. finance, who to ban, cheaters, pay the pros, reserve lists, reprint policies. Yeah, the reserve list is one that jumped into mind, certainly, because I wrote about before I wrote about how the reserve list is not what where we would want to go. But I wrote in defense of keeping the promise once you've made the promise. So basically saying, Unfortunately, we're stuck here. There's, there, you don't want to, there's too much credibility at stake for them to actually reverse course. And that ends, that ended up being where they landed as well, wizards. I mean, but, but that's an extremely unpopular position, regardless of the fact that they adopted it. You know, many feel they adopted it purely for legal reasons and, and not because it's the right thing to do. But I was just saying, look, you know, yeah. As a company, you should not tie your hands that tight. But once you've done so, then you you know your, your credibility is at stake. So that was a, a very controversial article. I think anytime you talk about issues that touch on underrepresented demographic groups in our game, so if, you know women in Magic being the most frequently written about, and I pushed back very hard on Mark Rosewater trying to use statistics based on what what had to be a very biased survey because it happened once in isolation. It was their own market research, and we we never got exposed to. To what the methodology was, and it didn't seem replicable. Where you know, thirty-six percent of Magic players are women, and I said, "Well, let's have a conversation about what statistics, what statistics we're going to use, methodology, what we're going to accept as you know, truth versus just hey, this is one statistic, but it's actually not really transparent how they got to that number." That's a controversial. Business. Some people read that and they say, "Well, wait a minute, are you? Is this all in defense of the status quo?" And I say, "No, but people may not believe me, and that's fine." So yeah, these are examples of articles that had as, at least as much negative reaction as they did positive reaction, but that I still felt were important to write because I had a, I had an opinion on it that I wasn't seeing expressed by others. Since we're on the topic about writing about unpopular things or really controversial things, how do you feel that the magic community as a whole kind of receives controversial topics? These days, it almost feels like every corner you turn, there's a controversial topic about magic waiting for us. Is it because we love this game and we hold on to this game so personally, but this game is primarily driven by a corporation that is what's creating these gaps and these rifts? Or is it just because things are changing at a very rapid pace and a lot of, of the subgroups of magic players are being alienated or pushed out or marginalized or the other way around? Yeah, I think it I think it says less about magic than it does about the general communication and news cycle framework that we that's even broader than magic. So I think that and I say that because I think if you're a fan of if you're a fan of video games, you know, if you're a Call of Duty fan, do you think there's not the same kinds of arguments and and hot topics and controversies? I suspect that there are. I'm, that's not me, but I suspect that there are. Things that I know nothing about. I mean, if you, I, I suspect, I don't know, but I suspect if you're a doll collector, whenever there's news about doll in the doll collecting world, I suspect there's controversy, there's people with different positions and different outcomes. And, and the tools that we use to communicate now, Twitter being the one that, one, being one that I use to communicate publicly, Facebook and others, we talk about these platforms just being lent to this kind of rapid news cycle, controversy, the hunt for kind of outrage and controversy. So I think that these are not things that I would locate within magic and the magic community outside of just being the general trend. Now, the way it shows up in the magic community, yeah, it has its own it has its own nuance, its own intricacies, but I think you very much see the same thing playing out in other contexts, playing out on a larger scale if you want to talk about, you know, politics or anything else. And I just see it my magic as a microcosm of, of the bigger trends. What do you think is going to be an adequate way for the magic community to solve or at least resolve or gain a better understanding of a lot of these issues? 
Well, I think the I think the trend towards getting more different voices to bringing more different voices to the table and hearing different things and being more receptive to the idea of and I see people now more receptive to this. I, I certainly am, but hey, I experienced this a little differently. Whether it's a tournament, right? I experienced the Grand Prix circuit differently than others, or I experienced Friday Night Magic in a different way, or the, or the local game store. I think the community being becoming increasingly receptive to those to listening to those different perspectives has been very positive. I think that we are headed in the right direction in that sense so i'm not i'm not like a total you know the sky is falling with this stuff i think there's always going to be a danger that of too much of a good thing when it comes to how we're how we're filtering voices and how we're elevating voices and how we're maybe perhaps even taking away the platform of others so i mean i think that's that's real too but overall the trend line is positive I think we're, I'm in a much healthier place with my writing than I used to be in terms of when I set out to write about something controversial or to make people laugh. I'm able to do it now in a way that's more nuanced and better than, than it was in years past. So I think I'm learning, other people are learning. I see more positive trends than I see negative ones. And the negative ones are just, you know, ironing out some of the wrinkles. Like I said, that our society still has to figure out how do you not make the loudest voices drown out everything else where all you have is the two most extreme positions on every topic, shouting at the top of their lungs at each other, demanding everybody else take sides. Like this, this happens in, in every controversial issue now. And again, I don't think it's specific to magic, but it's important in magic because it's important everywhere. How do we get, how do we actually hear from different folks on different topics and in a way that doesn't, not only the most extreme positions on everything. I started this podcast, Kitchen Table Magic, about two and a half years ago. And I feel that my journey from Kitchen Table Magic player to FNM grinder to content creator, I, I've started to, I guess, pierce the veil about what magic is really about. I've gotten into what, how the sausage is made. And so there's a lot of discussion right now about um, other people becoming content creators. What do small content creators do? Or what do big content creators do to retain their position in creating media or, you know, changing and shaping what the future community looks like, right? There's a lot of talk about inclusivity. And there's also, unfortunately, a lot of talk about exclusivity, about certain groups of people wanting to preserve what they have and preserve the way that they enjoy the game. Wizards as a company kind of can take sides and there's healthy ways to take sides, but also on like a lot of other issues, they just do their best not to take sides. What do you think is Wizards' responsibility in all of this? Well, if I had the answer to that, no, I mean it's 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 really tough. And again, I hate to I hate to keep circling back to the same type of response, but I think it's really important that these these types of questions are just extremely unresolved right now in our society. What is the role of any company in bringing people of different backgrounds to the table in understanding that the pipeline of people who are interested in in that activity or that job may be already skewed and we don't know why but very likely there's strong you know cultural and social factors whatever it is that encourages people to be interested in magic in different rates is something that you know that's how valid is that baseline how and then you know how do we view the leaky pipeline whether you're talking about job candidates or you're talking about people the pipeline between casual player to the to pro tour player that's also a pipeline there may be leaks so there's oftentimes more than one thing going on there's a skew in who's even coming into the pipeline and there's a leak in the pipeline where people are getting harassed and abused and leaving or people are you know or it's just an old boys club that stuff's all very real and and it's you'd be foolish to dismiss it so it's a long way of saying if I had the answer to that for magic, you know, I would certainly be working very hard to apply it to, to more important domains, whether it's, you know, STEM educations or anything else where you see skews in who's able to participate, who wants to participate, whose voices get amplified. 
and there's pushback on uh, you know proposed interventions. There's pushback against those, and there's this giant tug of war happening in our society. So, what is Wizards' responsibility in all of this? I think they've done a pretty good job trying to. Again, from my perspective, I, I think it's always safest. You're on safest ground when you're just bringing people to the table and letting their talent shine. Wizards does things like that. So they've had they've changed the makeup of you know the authorship on on the, what's called the mothership. There's too many ship analogies floating here, but um, you know on on daily MTG, you know they they've had they've brought in new writers, new voices, and then you kind of, and you let their talent shine. And that's that's an approach that certainly I would try to take in the corporate world as well. How do we get more people to apply to these jobs, and then how do we evaluate them fairly, take bias out of the system? And those approaches are in the corporate world. Again, no, there's nothing that's easy. There's nothing that's not controversial. But you have to you have to be trying, in my opinion. And I think Wizard is trying. But then again, you have to be sensitive. You know, you don't want to start creating. In my opinion, you don't want to create like a you know a separate pro tour or separate invites necessarily. I think there's a step too far um, with this stuff. But Wizards, I think, is is looking at this and, and thinking about how they can change some of the some of the voices and, and give more opportunities to folks. And it's going to be up to them to find smart ways to do it. And if I had the answers, I, I would be happy to share them. But it's, it's really complicated. The traditional model about how Wizards drive sales for its game is that there's a competitive aspect to the game. There's a deep analytical thought process, this huge layer of pros that are very exceptional at understanding this game. And that kind of filters down into single sales and card sales and deck techs and sideboard guides and videos and GPs and the chasing the dream and all this stuff. Recently, we've seen how Wizards has altered that understanding of what it means to them to do marketing and what it means to them and how they I guess, look at this huge layer of pros. Pro Tour 25 just happened this weekend. And there was a lot of people who were like, well, I didn't make gold. So I don't, good knowing you, good seeing you. You know, it looks like they're like, it's like they're saying goodbye. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, there's, there, there's, there's, there's been, I've had engaged in many lively debates over what the purposes of a Pro Tour, what purposes does it serve? How do players plug into that? How do we balance the competing needs and concerns of a player base, a company that needs to be a profit center, local game stores, casual players, commander players? I mean, there's so many different constituencies when it comes to magic. I mean, there's so many people that love it, but there's also a bunch of so many people that create different things, like you mentioned, content creators, wizards itself. And I, so, yeah, I, I've tried to encourage people not to get not to get tunnel vision, either on their own perspective and saying, hey, it's all about let's say it's all about eyeballs on coverage because I care about coverage probably being as good as it can be. And I was arguing with Cedric Phillips about this the other day. He was saying, you know, well, eyeballs is really what they should be focused on. I said, well, there's actually the Pro Tour also serves as the highest pinnacle of an entire ladder of competitive activities. It's not just even even if nothing was televised, you can imagine that it would still be really important to encourage players to invest their time, money, energy in this as a competitive endeavor. So, again, my, my takeaway wasn't that Cedric was wrong about you want more eyeballs on the broadcast. If you can, you want more eyeballs on, the, on whatever the content is. But you have to say there's actually it's, it's something com more complex than that. It's serving multiple different needs, multiple different audiences. And if you're not the, the fewer of those different constituencies and audiences you're mindful of, the more tunnel vision you have, you know, you're not really thinking broadly enough. So absolutely, I mean, the gold player that just fell out of status and whether, you know, the changes they've made to the competitive landscape 
put that player in a better or worse position. Yeah, these can be debated endlessly. And I just encourage players to find a space, you know, make sure that you're actually doing what makes you happy long term, which I wrote an article about, you know, finding a real job after being a pro, that kind of thing, and encouraging people to think more creatively about how they're spending their time making a living. But anyway, that's kind of a separate topic. That's actually a great segue, because I was going to ask you about that. When you saw the fallout from basically the silver showcase, it was like pay the pros 2.0 and like all of this, there was such a, I guess, an outcry and just a lot of anger and confusion and disappointment from the pro community. You raised your voice. You were like, you know, I've been thinking about this for a long, long time. And I've helped a lot of our colleagues think about this. And this is, you know, a greater understanding of I guess this is a greater issue, not just about magic, not just about competitive play, but also really it's like about life. It's like, what are you using your time on? How are you finding fulfillment and competition and, and mental stimulus on? Yeah, and and, and I, I, I'm going to say an analogy, not and this is not intended to in any way belittle you know abusive relationships. But if you if you think about abusive relationships and someone, if once someone concludes, I'm not getting what I need where I'm at, there's always you know. They have to evaluate not just what are the how do I change this situation, but also like when do I start to consider leaving and finding a new situation. So when it comes to a pro magic player who's looking at the silver showcase and looking at the pro reward system in general and saying this isn't giving me what I need personally and professionally. Again, not again not to say this that they're an abusive relationship, but what I need to say is. They have to look at both. How do we encourage, how do we convince wizards to give us more and give me more of what I need? But also they have to take a hard look in the mirror and say, is there somewhere else I could be spending my time and energy to get what I need? And, and what they need, it's going kind to of vary person to person, but it could, yeah, it could be simply financial, you know, remuneration that lets them, gives them a livable wage. For some, that's, that's an issue, that's a need that's missing when they go pro, so to speak. For others, it could be a sense that they're getting a return on the time and energy they put in. They're getting something proportional back. And of course, you, you get a lot back. You, you get, you have fun, you travel, you get a lot back. But I'm saying, but that still has to add up to something that you feel is in proportion to what you're putting in. Otherwise, you feel that there's a hole there that you feel some aspects of your needs aren't being met. And my article was a way to kind of throw, you know, I wouldn't say completely throw a life, kind of throw a life jacket at a few folks who may be feeling in that moment here at the end of the season, they decided to throw a bunch of money at people that that aren't them, you know, at the, in the silver showcase, this may be a moment for them to evaluate that. And I want, and I don't want someone staying in that situation because they don't have the tools to figure out what to do next. I tried to supply those tools in my article. Here's how you put a resume together. Here's how you might think about leveraging the network by asking people to lunch or, or that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, obviously I've seen enough friends go through it. That's something really important to me. And I, I thought I could add some value by chiming in. I was reading on a social media thread recently about really the true nature of what a corporation does, especially with such a public facing product, right? When you look at like an energy company or a car company or consumer, you know, consumer packaged good or something, you're like, oh, great, a candy bar. There's not so much of a community based around that. I mean, some cookies maybe, but when it comes to gaming and hobbies and content and you've got lore and storytelling, there's so many human emotions that kind of get thrown into the mix. And a community is built very, very strongly around this product. 
one thing that I, you know, I even myself am at fault of forgetting sometimes is that Magic the Gathering is a product. We turn this product into a lifestyle and the product and the lifestyle and the story and the friends and the community and the physical action of playing Magic as a hobby, those are all very healthy things. Ultimately, it is kind of driven by a corporation, right? It's owned by Hasbro and it's a for-profit corporation. And this corporation is made of a lot of different people and they all have different KPIs, key performance indicators. They all have metrics for success and failure. And they all have a, a very complex decision-making process that, you know, for a million different reasons, affect the end product. And so oftentimes, you know, like I said earlier, Matt, I was like really becoming a podcaster and be really becoming a content creator. I've, I've kind of peeled back this veil and really looked at what is in this sausage. And I really understand that magic as a whole is incredibly schizophrenic. You know, you look at what, like, why Silver Showcase? Why do they invite all these Hearthstone players that get a lot of kind of new media eyeballs and they're playing the oldest pieces of cardboard we have? And then you've also got Magic Arena that does this thing, but it's like very different than Magic Online if you were going to make a digital product. Now we're making an MMORPG and we also have like like puzzle quests. And we've also got a couple of, you know, mobile games that look like mobile light. I mean, there's just all of these weird different things that kind of go down. And recently we'd like, even with like the whole uh, buy box promo, I mean, all these different decisions absolutely do not come from a singular person. They absolutely don't come from uh, catering a specific need of one kind of, of magic player. They're all very segmented out. No, absolutely right. That's that's the key insight that some folks are missing. If that there's not one goal, there's not. It's not. It's actually, and even just make as make as many dollars as possible is also not the only goal. I mean, they also they are they're both the kind of safekeeper of this thing that people love. And I know the people working there understand that and care about that. I mean, that that's real for them. And and if, if, if something is proposed that's so fundamentally at odds with that, I think those people would speak up and tr at least try. Now, they, they may not have all the power to do whatever they can, but they'd at least try to stop something like that that was so destructive to what was going on. So I think they are that, but they, you know, they're complex. They, they contain multitudes, so to speak. They contain both the profit motive and they can, and they contain individuals who care about things other than, than, than the profit of the parent corporation. So yes, all this stuff is in the soup and it's all mixing together. And there's certain key elements, right? Like if they're not making a profit, then something is so broken that they are going to, there are mechanisms that are going to force change, right? So, so, so them making money and in some sense making more and more money over time because that's how these things tend to go. To some extent, that that is kind of table stakes. If you don't have that, then you can't do the rest. But they're going to try their hardest, and I really believe this, to do that and be a good safekeeper for this hobby that people love and care about. And it's kind of like I think about so when someone says... Someone, you know, people have their beloved film franchises and say, oh, well, you know, so-and-so is ruining, name your favorite film franchise, Star Wars, Star Trek, whatever. And, you know, and I know that the people working on those, they also have to have these competing things, you know, fan service and making fans happy and, and keeping this thing going. It's both, you know, that also may be part of the long-term profit strategy, but they're also thinking about profit. But anyways, like I said, people can be are complex enough that they can be motivated by multiple things. And when I see people focusing so narrowly on one set of constraints or goals, then just like you, I question whether they need to kind of just zoom out a little bit and think about all the different competing things. Uh, in my articles, I definitely try to highlight as many of the different things that are in play as I can, but I often miss huge chunks of it because there's so much going on.
With Magic, there's always a huge amount going on. You can't know every card, you can't know every format, you can't know every sideboard decision or meta. And in that exact analogy, when you look at Magic as a business and Magic as a communication industry and a, and a community, you can't know everything that affects every person, you know, whether they're being occluded or marginalized or excluded or problems that go on. There's just, there's just no way to know everything. And uh, like you said earlier, Matt, about being very careful, not getting that tunnel vision and zooming out. The zoom, the perfect solution to zoom out is always ask yourself, are you having fun, <laughs> right? Like, are you are you having fun with whatever it is that you're doing? And if you're not having fun, maybe it is time to zoom out. Yeah, I think yeah, definitely. People in terms of the finding their happy space within the game, right? Like, so I mentioned the, the pros that may be struggling to to locate that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, is it, is it still fun for me? It, does it feel like work or? Am I just doing it because I'm, I'm, even though I'm not happy spending this much time on magic, I'm really scared about what comes next if I don't, if I downshift from that. So, and you know, you see that a lot and I'm trying to, in, in some of the writing I've done, you know, trying to kind of demystify some of that, what comes next and say, here's, here's an example of what might come next or demystify, you know, what, what would be the first step. And this, this stuff is t- legitimately terrifying, terrifying for people um, who find themselves parts of the uh, so ingrained in the community that they're actually putting spending too much time and I'm sure there's I'm sure there's casual and aspiring players that are even spending too much money on magic right that that and it's something again we talked about how many different complexities there are how many different constituencies how many different audiences yeah there's part of the audience that really would love nothing more than to continue to play the next modern pro tour qualifier but really shouldn't be spending that amount of money on a deck and anyways so we all should be mindful of whether our needs are being met in any hobby or pursuit that we pursue that, that we you know dive into as deep as many of us do with magic. Okay, I'm going to do a deep dive here, but I want to encourage people to be mindful of whether whether they're being honest with themselves. And a lot of us have kind of addictive or obsessive personalities, and that can that can lead you down certain paths with spending too much time, too much energy, too much money, whatever the case may be. Um, I've been guilty of it. I know I could name a hundred friends that have been guilty of it. Um, and so let's, you know, going forward, yeah, as a community, let's just be mindful of this stuff and come up with healthy alternatives to, you know, trying to win the next pro tour. Maybe the answer is I'm going to just compete in some team tournaments. That's what I'm just doing my own example. I'm, you know, I found it not to be healthy for me to go super hard anymore. And I'm, I'm, you know, experiencing diminishing returns and what I'm getting back, you know, I'm not, I don't have enough time to actually improve. So what, what, what am I doing? And just take a step back and find, and you can find other ways to, there's a lot in this game. Like, like, like we both keep saying, there's a lot to like, there's a lot that can make you happy and make you have fun. Try to locate that. All right, everyone, we're going to have more from Matt coming up, but first a word from our sponsors. Matt, you have a Patreon supporters gift for us. Could you tell us what it is? Yeah, the common assigned a few copies of the card Sick and Tired. It's a card that is right on brand for me, given my Sick of It column. It's also just a cool card. If you look at the art and flavor of the card, it's very much, uh, I don't think it's a top-down design. It's just a pretty basic nuts and bolts effect. But then when you look at this card, you actually get to some place that almost feels top-down. The art is really, the art really pops. These two characters are sick and they're each getting minus one, minus one. So it's a card that I've actually always been fond of and it certainly jives very well with my brand and, and you know the character that I play in these articles. 
Yeah, I try to take a Phyrexian approach to everything I do. <laughs> no, <I'm> just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's it's fair though. Yeah, I definitely. I think the ability to be ruthlessly analytical is something that I really value. I find it fun. I find it it's an easy way to be effective in what you're doing. Um, certainly, as a lawyer, that's true. So you know, that's an absolutely correct thing that you picked up on there. That analytical tendency, and it sometimes does seem a little bit Phyrexian, doesn't it? Well, Patreon supporters, I will have a whole bunch of copies of Sick and Tired that Matt will be signing. Thank you so much, Matt. Of course. My pleasure. Matt has signed a bunch of copies of Sick and Tired for our Patreon supporters. You can get one by becoming a supporter of the show at patreon.com slash kitchen table magic. Big thanks to all of my Patreon supporters, past, present, and future, who never get caught in the rain without an umbrella. Again, that's patreon.com slash kitchen table magic. Thank you for your support. This episode of Kitchen Table Magic is sponsored by Paragon City Games. I've been talking about Paragon City Games for some time now, and recently I've been invited to film three vlogs at their game store for their Heroes League Invitational series. It's a local tournament where the winners compete at a year-end Invitational. The player community there is wonderful, competitive, and fun. They have friendly staff that greet every single person that walks through the door. The store itself is huge, open, clean, bright, airy. There's beverages, snacks, clean restrooms, a fully loaded feature match area, and a high-tech streaming setup. The entire store is filled with huge open tables, enough to fit over 100 players. I played at an FNM there once, and there were four different formats going at the same time. They also have a huge selection of board games, magic singles, supplies, tokens, handcrafted wooden deck boxes, and artisanal diehard metal dice. If you want to see the vlogs I made for Paragon City Games, just go to facebook.com slash paragoncitygames and click on videos. I made three vlogs, one for each of their standard, modern, and legacy events. Paragon City Games has a commitment to legacy, and they're streaming legacy daily at twitch.tv slash paragoncitygames. If you're ever in Draper, Utah, go check them out. And if you love legacy, watch their Twitch stream, again, at twitch.tv slash paragoncitygames. They're a wonderful group of people, and I'm so grateful to have them as friends. Kitchen Table Magic is sponsored by Card Kingdom. In my experiences ordering things online, I always hope everything goes well. Like, will I get my package quickly? Will my order be correct? With so many business interactions being digitized and becoming less personal, we care more about receiving great customer service. And you're probably wondering, how do I find an online store that embodies all the qualities that we're looking for these days? I decided to read what people were saying online about Card Kingdom. Lost Jedi 2003 says, Card Kingdom, hey, I just got my orders. Love, love the speed and efficiency from you guys. Thank you very much. Twitter user Gold Convoy got a robot soldier token hand-drawn and included in their order. Huge thank you to Card Kingdom for the custom token. I asked for a mechanical robot soldier token and it's beyond what I could have imagined. Kitoshi got a fully colored rainbow chameleon token drawn. Brock Bro says, Thank you, Card Kingdom. Ordered Friday, received Monday. Fast shipping is no lie. Love the pull tab tape job on the case. 39 cards. Rich Baranek says, At Command Cast, you were right. Card Kingdom ships fast. Wasn't expecting to have this for another week or two. Also, no one mentioned the awesome care they take in packaging the cards. Even professional football player Cassius Marsh gets his hard-to-find foils from Card Kingdom. It seems the people have spoken. 
from fast shipping logistics to great customer service, card selection, and also the care their fulfillment takes when packaging each order, Card Kingdom goes above and beyond. I even purchase all of my Patreon supporters' gifts from Card Kingdom. So if you're looking to purchase Magic the Gathering singles and sealed products online, Card Kingdom has been trusted by Magic players around the world. You can also show support for Kitchen Table Magic when you use our affiliate link, cardkingdom.com KTM. Again, that's cardkingdom.com KTM. Okay, everyone, and we are back. Matt, I have some rapid fire questions for you. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, Matt, of the five colors of magic, white, blue, black, red, and green, which is your favorite color and why? This is a really tough one. I don't think in these terms, like when I think about what I like about magic and what I don't, but if I'm forced to think about what makes me love magic as a game, I think probably red is my favorite because red to me is about resource management on a shortened time frame where you're trying to shorten the game. You have to be efficient. You have to be, your, your deck has to perform consistently, but still has to overwhelm the opponent quickly. So anyways, I've always enjoyed playing red decks. And in fact, I have a Pro Tour Top 8 with a red deck, which I didn't think about as I was formulating my answer, but it kind of makes sense that um, I found that kind of strategy to be one that oftentimes is a little bit underexplored by the pro players. So you, you, you've probably heard the answer blue a lot, right? People want, like to feel in control. But I think there's something fun in just feeling a little bit out of control sometimes and trying to sprint towards something as fast as you can. So I'm going to say red. And if you could pair red with another color, which one would it be? Oh, I would say green. I like the way red and green combine. And you kind of, you you end up with a very similar goal, but you end up using different tools and, you know, a more creature focused, sometimes even, you know, oftentimes ramp uh, focused. So anyways, you're still, you still more than likely end up trying to close the game out faster rather than play a longer game. But green brings some new tools into the mix. So I've, I've enjoyed playing those strategies. Matt, rapid fire question number two. If you could change something about Magic the Gathering, what would it be? If I could change something about Magic the Gathering, I would have every dollar invested in Magic Arena invested into a different version of Magic Online with with the collections persisted. This is something that is partly selfish. I enjoy playing Magic Online. I find it I find it actually a way to enjoy all of Magic and the older formats that Arena doesn't right now provide and probably won't provide something like Vintage or Legacy anytime soon. It's been tremendously sad for me to see a diminishing focus on Magic Online, given, again, that's much of how I enjoy Magic these days. So, if I could change one thing, I would, I would, it would be a resource shift into Magic Online and trying to figure out, okay, what is the scalable version of this? You know, yeah, the, the current version is likely not it. What is the scalable version? And I'm just a little bit disappointed that Arena seems to be the answer to that question, even though it's not a complete answer. Matt, rapid fire question number three. If you could give something to every Magic player, what would it be? If I could give something to every Magic player, I would give them a friend group that they like and trust as much as what the one that I've been fortunate enough to enjoy. And I, so I think... I've been really lucky in that way. The thing that's most valuable from my experience of magic has to be the relationships I've formed along the way. And if I could, if that could be an experience that was replicated with everyone, you know, from time to time, I do hear from folks say, yeah, you know, I've had a little bit of trouble forming a playtest group or finding a team for that team Grand Prix. And I, I feel a little bit of heartbreak when I hear that because it's in such sharp contrast to what I've experienced. So if I could, if, if I was able to bring that to everybody, snap my fingers and have everybody have an experience that mirrors my own, I would, I would take a hard look at that. 
Matt, rapid fire question number four: What do you see in the future of Magic: The Gathering? In the future of Magic: The Gathering, I see at some point dwindling growth, but a community that goes very deep still with the ingrained players. So many, many deeply ingrained players who who are fully obsessed with Magic and love Magic, but just higher barriers to entry when it comes to the challenge of trying to convince a new player to learn legacy or modern now. Um, it's often a daunting task, both in terms of the, the amount of complexity that's been stacked up, but also just as importantly, the, the financial investment required. So I think people are too in love with this game for it to go anywhere or for those entrenched players to go anywhere in, in, in large droves. But you know, I worry about the new player experience and how much of the richness of this game is no longer available to players who don't have the financial resources that some others do. So anyway, so that's that's a concern and a prediction. The the prediction being that those barriers to entry will continue to climb, at least in the near term. And then the concern being just all the effects that that has on what a new player faces if they're ever going to love the game as much as I do and experience it in all the, the myriad ways that I do. It's, it's, it's a pretty you know tall hill to climb at this point. And last, Matt, do you have any asks or requests of the listening audience? Sure, I'm gonna. I'll echo. I'll echo what, what I I wrote this morning in an article. Yeah, I encourage you to read it on Channel Fireball, and I'll echo what I said there, which is let's all be better borrowers and lenders of cards. <laughs> the concern I expressed in my answer to the fourth question was that you know it's gonna be harder and harder for a newer player to play a tournament or for someone to complete the half of the deck that they're missing in order to, you know, to get into that. You know, if you, if you have those resources and you can be the person that lends that half a deck or lends that deck to a newer player so they can experience something, I hope that you'll be that person and we'll all find a way to be accountable to each other when it comes to paying it back, you know, find a way to track it. And again, just, and if someone's not being accountable, put them on blast. <laughs> so we as a community can, can, can jump in. But yeah, I, I think that's one of the ways that we can kind of stem the bleeding here when when it comes to the financial costs of some of these older formats. Thank you so much, Matt. I really appreciate all of your sage wisdom and advice. And regardless of what some people may think about the character that you have in your sick of it column, what I really heard from you today is really this sage wisdom, also this love and admiration and respect for Magic the Gathering as a game, as well as the community. And all I hear from you is just how much you care deeply about this hobby. And I really appreciate everything that you've done, everything that you've written, the pillar that you are for the community. Thank you for all of your contributions. And if you want to go find Matt on Twitter, he's at sick of it. And he also writes the column on Channel Fireball, sick of it. Well, thank you so much for the kind words, and it was a real pleasure to, to be with you today, so I appreciate it. I appreciate Matt's insight on the issues we talked about. Casual players, pro players, fans, content creators, retail stores, and Wizards of the Coast make up the ecosystem of the Magic community. How we forge ahead into the future is a hot topic, but I am optimistic and excited. You can read Matt's column on Channel Fireball called Sick of It. Matt's also on Twitter at Sick of It. I'll have all the links in the show notes at kitchentablemagic.org. You can follow Kitchen Table Magic on Twitter at KTM Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Tang, and I'm on Twitter at Sam O'Tang. 
Mango. Kitchen Table Magic is now on Spotify in addition to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, Hipsters of the Coast, and mtgcast.com. And if you have Google Home or Alexa, you can tell it to play Kitchen Table Magic Podcast. I tried it the other day and it worked. I got a kick out of it. And if you'd like to support the show, you can head on over to patreon.com slash kitchen table magic. I want to take this moment to thank all of our Patreon supporters. Brian, Marcus, James, L, Alex, Trevor, Caitlin, Neil, Aaron, C, Corey, Chad, Logan, S, Nick, Eternal, Dirtles, Matthias, Geraint, Scryfall, Matt, Ian, Carl, Yana, David, and Matthew. I really appreciate all my Patreon supporters, past, present, and future. Your kind words on social media, likes, follows, shares, and reviews on Apple Podcasts help new listeners find the show. And thank you to everyone that's been sharing Kitchen Table Magic with a friend. Coming up in the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic. This was one of the first PTQs I ever played, and it was a Kamigawa limited PTQ, and it was a team tournament. So I was playing with two other much older men, because I was a, a small child at the time, and we made it all the way to the finals of the PTQ, and people were just kind of looking at us like, who's that little kid with those two other guys that I just randomly picked up at the local game store? And how did these guys make the finals? Then we made it to the finals and I informed my teammates, hey guys, even if we win this tournament, I won't be able to go to the Pro Tour because I have school and I have other obligations and my parents won't let me go to the Pro Tour. I'm too young for this experience to do this on my own. And obviously I was very upset at the time to hear that because I called my mom and I was like, hey, I'm about to win this tournament. I'm going to go to the Pro Tour. And she was like, no, you're not doing that. You're not going to Japan or et cetera. I was really bummed, but I knew that I had gotten to the place where I could actually win a PCQ. We were one, we were one Rochester draft away from winning. That was a fun experience. And I knew that, you know what? I'm not going to win this PCQ. I'm not going to go to the Pro Tour, but it's something that later on down the line I can aspire to and I can get back here. That was world champion and class of 2018 Pro Tour Hall of Fame inductee, Seth Manfield. Seth is a force to be reckoned with. A skilled player even in his early years, Seth has been tearing up the competitive scene since 2013. His recent Pro Tour Ixalan win solidified him as a player that's here to stay and change the landscape of competitive magic. Seth shares with us about his journey and his pride as a father, all on the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic. 